everybody, how's it going? This is Hub, and welcome back to another episode of Titan Up the Defense, a podcast that would likely benefit from a tagline. As I believe I just mentioned, my name is Hub, and I hope you're having a fine whenever the heck it is you end up listening to this. Me? I'm doing pretty good. It was Thanksgiving last week, and although I had to work a 12-hour shift on the day and didn't get to eat with my family that day, which I bring up only so that you will pity me and maybe give me money. Patreon.com slash Wasteland for all your giving me money needs. Anyway, Lisa was able to bring home a plate of leftovers from my parents' house, which was very nice of her. And I am still eating sandwiches that are leftovers from Thanksgiving. Or am I? You see, my particular leftover sandwiches represent a sort of Ship of Theseus-type philosophical quandary. The Ship of Theseus dilemma being that uh, Theseus, the Greek hero, sailed all over the world, and gradually over his journeys he replaced every single part of his ship over time. So, is it the same ship? Hmm, I don't know. And so it is with my sandwiches, because, naturally, I ran out of stuffing first, because stuffing is the best. But then, I don't want to have a leftover sandwich without any stuffing in it, so I went out, and I made some stuffing. But, then I had way more stuffing than turkey or cranberry sauce, so, when those ran out, I had to go get more turkey and cranberry sauce. So, the question I put to you now is, am I in a state of perpetual leftover, or of no leftovers at all, and this is, in fact, new sandwiches? Hmm. A philosophical dilemma for the ages. I'm sure years from now, in freshman philosophy classes, bored 18-year-olds will be asked to consider the dilemma of the sandwich of Hub rather than the ship of Theseus. I mean, granted, I haven't slain any minotaurs, but I would view that as a positive. Minotaurs and me, we're good, man. Got no beef with a minotaur. Oh, my. That was one of the rarest creatures on this show, the actually unintended pun. Well, that's about as good a time as any to end this rambling. So, without any further ado, let's, uh, do this. Today's synopsis rhyme is submitted by Devin Tuhey. Let's explain the tangled backstories of Storm and Colossus. Oh wait, that's the wrong podcast. Here we do a synopsis. Synopsis. Thanks, Devin. And I believe what Devin is referring to is the uh, fabulous podcast Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, which uh, I know you guys already all listen to, but in case you aren't, you should really check it out. It's a great show that is continuing somehow to get better. I really think they're doing some of their best work yet over there. Except for this one episode where this uh, one dude came on and just rambled about Rom and Jack Kirby for like an hour. That was weird. I would skip that one. Defenders number 41. November 1976. Intruder in the Sand. Written by Steve Gerber, drotted by Sal Buscema, inked by Klaus Janssen, colored by Don Warfield, lettered by Denise Wool and Gaspar Saladin, and edited by Archie Goodwin. Defensive lineup. Doctor Strange. The Incredible Hulk. Valkyrie. Nighthawk. The Red Guardian. And Clea. Previously in The Defenders. About a year ago, billionaire Duelbert enthusiast Kyle Richmond, a.k.a. Nighthawk, was dating a rad young lady named Trish Starr. 
Trish was a musician, an artist, an engineer, a designer, an inventor, and was using her burgeoning modeling career to fund an artist colony in upstate New York. She was also objectively way too good for a dipshit like Kyle. Unfortunately, the pretty polymath had problems that were arguably even more dire than her abysmal taste in men. Trish had an evil uncle who was a supervillainous egghead named Egghead. The ovoid-headed asshole devised some sort of evil doohickey and demanded that his niece loan him the money he needed to complete his insidious invention. When his niece refused, Egghead became enraged and planted a car bomb in the limousine that Trish and Kyle would be using on their date that night. The diabolical device did the deed it was designed to do and detonated, hospitalizing both of the vehicle's inhabitants. Kyle made a full recovery, but the doctors were forced to amputate Trish Star's left arm. Distraught both over her newfound inability to drive a stick shift and her erroneous belief that Kyle now looked upon her with pity rather than love, Trish left the Big Apple and headed out on the road on a journey of self-discovery. Gadzooks! To what locations will Miss Star's self-seeking sojourn lead her? After the recent behavior of Jack Norris, has Kyle lost his status as the biggest jerk in this comic? And seeing as this is Steve Gerber's last issue as writer, does that mean we'll finally find out what the fuck the deal was with Elf with a Gun? Stay tuned to find out. Okay, so first to Nevada, then to a universe where form and mass have no meaning and colors and shapes shift and merge kaleidoscopically in patterns the eye cannot discern nor the mind order, which is weird because I thought Las Vegas was in Nevada. Well... Kyle is a huge asshole to a nice dude who's trying to help him, crashes a dude's dune buggy, and then smooches an unconscious lady, so I'd say he's back in the game. And no. Kyle received a mysterious phone call from a dude named David Anthony who runs some kind of a dude ranch slash commune out in Nevada. Dave mentioned that Trish had gone missing and might be in some kind of trouble, so Kyle and Steve Strange put on their civilian duds and head out west to investigate. David greets the Titanic twosome when they arrive at his cowpoke commune. The boisterous Bolshevik buckaroo begins to introduce himself, but is interrupted by Kyle, who is like, Ugh, nobody cares who you are or what you think. Now tell us what you know about Trish so I can go back to sulking and being wealthy, you idiot. I am paraphrasing, but only very slightly. After Steve apologizes for Kyle being so, well, Kyle, David provides some exposition. Turns out Trish Starr showed up at the communal corral, fresh off the heels of breaking up with some self-absorbed fuckwit who thought that her recent loss of limb was all about him. Man, that guy sounds like a real asshole. Soon after her arrival, Trish came up with some bold new designs for the ranch, improving their housing, irrigation, and education systems, and proposing plans for making the commune more inclusive and its population more diverse. Way to go, Trish! Unfortunately, after proposing and implementing these changes within the first week of her arrival, Trish got pretty bored and started to withdraw. She started getting pretty into mysticism, spirituality, and meditating. Naturally, engaging in that kind of behavior on a commune in the 1970s made her stick out like a sore thumb. One day, after a particularly intense consultation with a tarot deck, Trish stumbled into the mess hall enveloped by a giant atomic symbol and shouting, I can see the structure! I can see it all! After a brief stay in the ranch's chill-out tent, Trish attempted to reintegrate herself into the community, but she found herself increasingly distracted and irritable. Then, about four days ago, saying she needed to get her head together, Trish wandered off into the desert, and nobody's seen her since. 
When David is done concisely and helpfully relating the information that Kyle and Steve requested, Kyle thanks him by sarcastically mocking the friendly cowboy. Steve once again apologizes for his shitty pal and asks if the next morning they can borrow one of the ranch's dune buggies to go look for the missing Miss Star. David agrees because he is a super nice guy who is willing to overlook the fact that Kyle is a stupid asshole. The next day, Dr. Strange and Kyle Richmond hop in one of Dave's dune buggies and head out to begin their investigation. They don't get far before Steve yells out, Kyle, slam on the brakes immediately! Kyle responds, What? Why would I slam on the brakes? Is there something I might hit? I think I'd better just keep on driving and not do as you requested. Well, that's one dune buggy that will never magically gain sentience and aid a band of mystery-solving teenagers, because Kyle crashes it into the invisible barrier that Steve had just sensed, and the vehicle is demolished. Sadly, Kyle is relatively unscathed. Doctor Strange magics himself and his non-teammate into their work clothes and asks Nighthawk to stay put and guard his unconscious body while Steve goes all astral and pokes around beyond the barrier to see what's what. When Ghost Steve pierces the veil, he finds himself in one of those weird dimensions that's just a bunch of shapes and colors and floating rocks. Spectral Steve wafts around for a minute, then runs into a familiar-looking one-armed blonde lady who is standing on a nearby floating rock. Why... I think that might be Trish Star. It is! Trish is non-responsive and appears to be unconscious. Steve detects that she has purposefully suppressed her mental processes and cut herself off from all stimuluses. Stimuli? Stimuluses. Stimuli? Anyway, Steve reckons that she probably did that for no reason at all, and he'll ask her about it once he drags her insensate body back to Earth. Good call, Steve. It's not like attempting to rescue an unwilling blonde lady from a cosmic plane has ever gone wrong for you before. Just ask Barbara Norris. Oh, that's right. Ever since you rescued her, it's kind of useless to ask Babs questions, unless you're okay with the answer being a long string of capital A's. Damn it, Steve! Before the intangible enchanter gets a chance to inspect the situation any further, some weird-looking space bear dudes show up out of nowhere and start shooting their weak-ass magic bolts at Steve. The non-corporeal conjurer muses to himself that the space bear magic is too ineffectual to do any real damage, but it's pretty annoying. So Ghost Steve tucks Trish's body under one of his spectral armpits and skedaddles back to our plane of reality. When they arrive back at the site of the dune buggy debacle, Nighthawk is delighted to see Trish. He tries to wake her up. For like a second. Then the entitled avian aficionado decides that waking her up is unnecessary, and he goes ahead and lays a non-consensual smooch on his unconscious ex-girlfriend. Damn it, Kyle! Eventually, no thanks to Kyle's uninvited mouth mashings, Trish regains consciousness. Thankfully, although she is a bit groggy, she seems able to use a full complement of vowels and consonants in both lower and upper cases. Hooray! Steve wants to know how she ended up back at Space Bear Junction. Rather than ask Trish, the apparently agency-agnostic enchanter uses the Eye of Agamotto to look directly into Trish's mind. No wonder Steve and Kyle are pals. Steve is shocked when his sorceress snooping in Star's skull reveals a surprising stowaway. Locked inside of Trisha's mind lurks a leering lady who has horns made out of hair coming out of the side of her head. Is it one of Nebulon's bozo buddies? Nope. It's Shazana! Wait, the Shaquille O'Neal genie movie? 
No, that's Kazam. The wizard who changed Billy Batson into Captain Marvel? No, that's Shazam. Damien Hellstrom's sister? No, that's Satana. The 50s revival band who inexplicably performed at Woodstock? No, that's Shanana. Shazana is a tyrannical ruler from a dimension that Steve visited back in the 60s. Steve was able to defeat her by destroying the magic rock that was the source of her powers. Well, now it turns out that Shazana has some new magic powers and was able to tap into Trish's mystical potential as well. Trish had stymied ShamWow's initial invasion attempt by turning off her brain and hiding on the cosmic plane, but now that Steve has, quote, rescued, unquote, her, damn it, Steve, the horn-haired harridan is free to wreak havoc on our realm. Shambhala summons a host of medieval knights riding purple bird horses to attack our heroes. Strange and Nighthawk manage to hold their own against the otherworldly assailants, but then one of the horsebird riders takes Trish hostage and holds a knife to her throat. Steve and Kyle surrender, and Shazbot crams them and Kyle into a mystical psychedelic cube that is made out of their own biological energies. If the cube is broken, its prisoners will die. Worst cosmic cube ever! Why can't you be more like other cosmic cube and, I don't know, grant wishes or eat Twinkies or resolve and create continuity issues? Now that's a cosmic cube! From inside their cubic containment, Steve explains to his fellow captives exactly who Shazana is and what the nature of their confinement is. He mentions that although the cube prevents him from contacting others on the outside, he believes that he has found a loophole. If Steve uses the connection that Charizard had previously established with Trish, he should be able to hijack the evil sorceress's own powers and use them to send a message to his disciple-slash-girlfriend, unsettling combination that, Clea. So, that's what he does. The defenders are hanging out at the Sanctum Sanctimonious when Clea receives the distress call. Over the years, Steve has contacted the Hulk enough times that the Green Goliath also receives the Sorcerer's Psychic SOS, although he's a bit confused that Steve seems to be speaking using Shazana's voice. Maybe he figures that the Sorcerer Supreme is just trying out some impressions. Fair enough. Dude is into some pretty weird hobbies. Unfortunately, the Hulk is not the only one who notices that Steve is sending signals through a stolen cerebellum. Shambord herself senses that someone has been using her mystical Wi-Fi signal to send their own sorceress emails. Rather than just set up a protected password like she should have in the first place, Shaz Palmentary decides to yoink Trish Star out of the cut-rate cosmic cube and have one of her hench people chop her head off. Dick move! Fortunately, before the axe-wielding minion can complete his task of reducing Trisha's future hat budget by 100%, the Hulk leaps in out of nowhere and snatches the descending axe before it can conclude its grisly duty. The Jade Giant crushes the weapon and lectures its owner that decapitating women is not very woke. Good point, the Hulk. Hooray! Strange instructs Clea to attempt to psychically merge with him and Kyle. See, I told you he was into some weird shit. The cube attempts to expand to envelop Clea as well, but there simply isn't enough substance to expand that much, and the cube itself dissipates, freeing its crime-fighting captives. Hooray! The defenders make short work of Scheherazade and her medieval meathead minions. Steve banishes Shazana and her crew back to whatever asshole dimension they came from. After foiling his fiendish foe, Doctor Strange turns to address Trish Star and ensure that she is protected against further insidious influences. 
but alas, he is too late. Trish stars off having a private talk with Kyle Richmond. No! Hasn't that poor woman suffered enough? And joining us once again is my good-for-many-things brother, Corey. Corey, how are you doing? Pretty well, pretty well. Glad little, to be here. A uh, little tired. Been a long weekend. A lot of, a lot of cooking, a lot mm. of doing of dishes. Yeah. Happy, well, you had to work on Thanksgiving. Yep. That and sucks. the day after, and the day after that. Happy not working today, sir. That's true. Thank you. Likewise. Thank you. So, what'd you think of this comic? Pretty good. Yeah. I thought in certain ways it was a fitting send-off to Steve Gerber. Oh, shit, this is the last... This is the last Steve Gerber issue. Aw, oh, man. I thought maybe it would have gotten a little weirder. Yeah. I mean, there was some weird in there. Sure. It's also the last Sal Buscema issue. What? I know. He's done all 41 issues of The Defender so far. It's the end of an era. It really is. It really is. Uh, next month, or for us, in two weeks, mm. it'll be Jerry Conway writing and Keith Giffen penciling. Although Klaus Janssen will still be doing the inks, which will lend a little bit of continuity to it. But yeah, like I said, I thought this had a lot of the weird touches that Steve Gerber has. It's not a totally out there issue, but there's some oddity going on. Mm -hmm. He gets to play with some of the concepts that he likes. He gets to play with some of the characters that he's developed. And perhaps most fittingly, in an attempt to wrap things up, I feel like it left more loose ends than it tied up. Yeah. And it, to me, had the, how do you put it? Like, there was a real sense of familiarity to the weirdness in mm -hmm. the sense that, um, I think the Hulk really hit the nail on the head when one of his panels, somebody was like, oh, this is exciting. He's like, no, everything's the same. Like, yeah, they're... I know what you mean. And I think that is maybe in part why Steve Gerber is bidding a farewell to this series. Yeah, it's Red Guardian says, Clea, what have you... Sorry. <laughs> she sounds like Steve. Clea, what have you transported us into? I'd hoped my American sojourn would prove exciting, but... And then Hulk responds, Exciting! Bah! Always it's just the same. Stupid humans hurt Hulk's friends, and Hulk must fight. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, we get a lot of that, and that's kind of what's going on here. But we do get to see the return of Trish Starr, which was nice. She is pretty awesome. She's great. Although, and I think especially in this issue, but I think it's something that's come up with Trish in the past too. Stop enabling Kyle. Well, that's a big part of it. But mostly it's that as described, Trish Starr is awesome. And in exposition and when it describes her backstory, Trish Starr is fucking awesome. But it doesn't really match up with her depiction. I wrote down, Trish Starr described does not equal Trish Starr depicted. And when we see her actually doing things, she's just kind of a potted plant in this. She doesn't really get to do or say much of anything in this issue, except through other people describing her in flashbacks. When she's actually present, she's less present than when people are talking about her. I feel like she had a very rough go of it, though, which to a degree could explain that. Like, yeah, when she was described, her past actions, like powerful, huge sense of agency. Right. Super smart. Got a lot of shit done. But this whole issue, she's just like, 
bad trip, man. Like, yeah. And then recovering from that. And I, I understand that she was on a bad trip, but she doesn't even get to, like, say that or even get much of a, like, what's going on? Where am I? There's, when they are interacting with her at first, it's fucking Kyle smooches her while she's unconscious still. Uh, which fucking, ugh. And she's like, I, it's okay, I feel fine. And then she's present for all of this stuff, but she doesn't get, like, even when Steve and Kyle are talking to her, she doesn't get any lines. When Steve is describing to her that he's going to use her as a conduit to contact his friends through Shazana, it's Kyle who has the expositional lines like, what are you doing? Mm-hmm. Yeah, she. you're right. She does just kind of sit there and people like are like, we'll use your mind portal. It's frustrating to me because she gets two lines. She, you, you freed me from this cube. Why? I understand that she's out of it and she's a little bit zonked. But I feel like that's been mostly the way that she's been portrayed. We get people talking about her backstory, that she used to be a child prodigy, and her uncle's an asshole, and like all of these things that she's done, and that she uses her modeling career to fund an arts commune upstate, and like all this cool shit about her. But she never talks about that. And she, for the most part, doesn't really talk very much. And... I wish we got to see a little bit more of her. Even if in the flashbacks she'd had some dialogue, rather than just have it be cowpoke David. Cowpoke commune, David? I um, was having a tough time figuring out what they were all about, <laughs> to be honest with you. It's a communal dude ranch. I think they're growing weed. <laughs> now, Corey, you grew up in, on a commune that was founded around this time. Yeah. Well, I wasn't getting out. Were you guys growing weed? <laughs> I was a kid, man. I don't know. Yeah. Probably. I, well, there, yeah. Yeah, there I mean, was, I, right. That was happening. But, like, but did... I wasn't involved. No, but, I mean, but it was almost, like, a similar thing in terms of, like, it wasn't... Yeah, there were some traditional hippies that were out there, but it was also, like, some, like, kind of no-nonsense, we're gonna live off the land and do this back-to-earth thing, and mm-hmm. we know how to build things, and... We're going to have barbecues and like it wasn't totally non-commune cowboy, was it? No, no. The weird thing, though, it being New Hampshire, the intersection of hippie and libertarian is a really weird crossroads because there were guns and but also long hairs and long hairs, long, long haired people. Yeah, I did ask my my mom about the the weed situation when I was in my 20s because I was pretty curious. And she's like, oh, yeah, but, you know, it wasn't like a whole field or anything. (laughs) Well, I mean, partly just New Hampshire. It's tough to... (laughs) Stuff doesn't grow there that good. No. (laughs) You got too much granite in the soil. That's right. Granite state. Mm -hmm. Mm. But yeah, did you see any parallels to like the situation you grew up with, with the, uh, the, the cowboys like building their own land and having their community? Out there? Because I was thinking about about you and how you grew up when I was reading this. No, I was mainly trying to figure out, like, are they, like, cowboys or, like, what's their angle? They're, they're... out there in the desert doing their thing. Yeah, I think they're cowboy hippies. Okay. I, th- I think, yeah. I got, because I was thinking more so about, I don't know, like, weird to me, like, a religious thing where, like, we're going to go away from, you know, create our own society and educate our kids the way that we want to and just be totally yeah. separated. Yeah, I mean, there is that aspect to it that, mm-hmm. I guess, there didn't seem to be any specific religious overtones to this group. Mm-hmm. And it seemed as though they were, like, trying to get away from future shock. 
And there was like a big back to the earth movement that was going on right around the seventies. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Late mid seventies. So I think it was like kind of an extension of that, but also it was weird to see that combined with what seemed for the most part, kind of like a dude ranch. Mm -hmm. Maybe that's how they funded it. Probably. Oh yeah. Maybe. I mean, we don't know what situations Trish came up with for them because she completely renovated the idea of commune living. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, she probably fed all the dude cows weed oh so that they would eat a lot and become really big and strong really fast man good thinking Corey. that is almost certainly her groundbreaking plan no wonder david anthony was so impressed with her probably solar panels too because uh what did carter had just been elected put some solar panels on, uh-huh, the, on uh-huh. the white house and she had done technological design in the past too as mm-hmm. well as fashion design yeah okay so we got weed cows and solar panels weird weed cows and solar panels and a renovated educational system. Probably uh, she taught them the metric system and the new math. The new math and uh, gambling income. Oh. Nevada and all. Oh, good thinking. Mm. Yeah, so good job, Trish. I know. Yeah, we see some of Trish Starr's journey while she decides to go heavy into the one field that as a polymath it seemed that she hadn't really delved into before as much which is mysticism and the spiritual and we see that she has the same inherent knack for that that she does for all of her other technological and fashion and musical and art pursuits she is a natural sorceress unfortunately she goes too far and shazana shazana is like hey we're not so different you and i And then just, like, kind of takes over her body a little bit, like, lives through her a little bit, uses her as a conduit into our planet, or tries to, until Trish takes herself out of the equation by going and floating in that weird dimension where they kept that statue of the Black Knight for a while. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, a little altered states situation going on. Uh Uh-huh. She's a real William Hurt. Was he the one who was in that? John Hurt? I can't remember. I also can't really remember that movie, except that it freaked me out a lot, and there was... I'm melting in tentacles and stuff. Me too, and then I also mix it up with the video game Altered Beasts. (laughs) That's probably not true, but it's very funny. It it is true. I do mix them up. Oh, Jesus. Huh. What? It's a game. Yeah, I I know. I know they're different things, but the details of the things, I I forget which is from which. Okay. William Hurt probably was also a voice actor in a video game. Oh, wait, they didn't imagine. have voices in games back uh, he then. He probably did what they call the efforts. The efforts? Yeah. Like, you would just be like... Rrr, rrr, rrr. Yeah. Yeah, a lot of actors. Yeah, make their... Extra money. Yeah. Spending money. Yeah. Doing little, video game efforts. pocket cash. Yeah. Just, like, go stand in the room and say... Or, or, harugit! Oh, yeah, totally. You know that harugit, that was actually... John Barrymore. Oh, really? Uh-huh. I didn't know that. Mm-hmm. And the harpage was... Jerry Orbach. Yes. Uh-huh. <laughs> Got it in one. Thank you. Fresh off of his hot Calypso career. He released a Calypso album in, what? The, I think, 50s. Yeah. <laughs> he is awesome. Yeah. Uh-huh. To Jerry Orbach. Hi, this is Editor Hub here, and just a quick note. Turns out, Jerry Orbach did not, in fact, release a Calypso album... I was thinking of Louis Farrakhan. Probably lots of people mix those two guys up, huh? Anyway, sorry about that. Orbach did release an album of show tunes called Off-Broadway in 1963. Maybe that's what I was thinking of. 
who can say for sure. So, how did you like the commune cowboy? I liked him quite a lot. He reminded me of the cowboy from Toy Story. Oh, the way that he was Woody? drawn. Yeah, which huh. is so. I wonder if the some Disney or Pixar person read this comic book when they were a kid. <laughs> Maybe and I don't think that pronounced a similarity. Oh, there's one panel. It's a. Uh... Is it the one where he's really excited yeah. about the plans for the weed cows? Yeah. Look at his profile. He looks very woody. That one? Yeah. Ah, shit. He kind of does. All right. I mean, he's got a different haircut and he dresses differently. But yes, in that one oh, it was the '70s. So you're saying in the '70s, probably the toy cowboy from Toy Story dressed more like that? No, I'm saying that the person that went on to animate that character or create him was probably a kid and mm. read this comic book. Mm. And it just subconsciously, you know, stuck. Well, what I wonder about the character David Anthony is if he was inspired by... So, the next issue, the writer is going to be Jerry Conway, but, like, three or four issues after that, uh, there's a new writer that is David Anthony Kraft. And I'm wondering if David Anthony is supposed to represent him in some way. David Anthony was a pretty young guy right then. He was, I think, in his early 20s. And it would be, I think, in keeping with Gerber's character to try to get a few digs at him. Like, maybe he was a particularly loquacious young man. Which is something, a characteristic we see ascribed to David Anthony, but then again, doesn't really seem to necessarily be the case. So, do you think... Kyle's dickishness towards David Anthony is a proxy dickishness for Gerber to the new writer? Gosh, I hope not. Because if so, dang, dude. Not I don't, cool. don't want to think that. I have certainly heard stories about Steve Gerber being pretty prickly at times to work with, but I like him so much better than I like Kyle. And Kyle, I think it would be ridiculous to not think that Gerber knew that Kyle was being an asshole in this issue. Because, damn, Kyle is being an asshole in this issue i well see that's a point of contention i guess for me because i feel like we're supposed to like kyle as a member of the team he's not like the like the, the guy that everybody loves to hate but he is he's definitely taken on that role he's a real shit heel it's especially i think partly it's in this issue jack norris isn't in the issue and i feel he's like a he's, he's a little bit in he's the on issue. the phone he's, for a yeah, while yeah but I feel like Gerber has just like a quota of a guy acting like an asshole that he needs to get out in an issue. And if he can't split it between Jack and Kyle, then it's just like, Kyle, you're double A, all asshole. Nature abhors a vacuum, especially an ass vacuum. And this guy abhors Kyle. Fair enough. (laughs) And I'm sorry that I stepped on your ass vacuum lines. Okay. It probably didn't need to be said. <laughs> well, but it was. And and I want you to feel free to share any thoughts you have about ass vacuums while you're on the show, Corey. It's important to me. Oh, and if you'd like to get into touch with us, what <laughs> eight public radio. I go back and forth on whether or not we are supposed to like or sympathize with Kyle. There are instances in which we definitely are, but he's being such a dick in this issue in so many ways. His powers are stupid, too. Yeah, and even he acknowledges that in this issue. Which is, that was actually... That was kind of fun. Kind of a highlight. Yeah, at one point when they are in the midst of battling Shazana's minions, he says, Yeah, even I'm making some headway. They must be awful. Which seemed... 
That's a it, little out of character for him to, to be him, self-deprecating. No? It is and it isn't. I feel like he gets away, he feels like, like he can get away with more if he's a little bit self-deprecating. Mm. Then it makes when he's being an asshole, he's like, no, then you can kind of take that ironically. I mean, I've definitely known people who are like that. Yeah, it's tough to tell to what extent we are supposed to like Kyle, because at this point, I just definitely don't. Mm-hmm. There have been times when I have sympathized with him a little bit more or a little bit less, but not necessarily the times when I think I was supposed to. It kind of reminds me of like watching 80s movies and you see the protagonists and you're just like, these guys are assholes. Why am I rooting for these guys? Mm-hmm. That guy's a prick. I watched the movie Gotcha a little while ago. I don't remember Gotcha. Uh, Anthony Edwards. It was like he plays a game that's kind of like paintball and he's good at it, and then he gets recruited to be a spy, and then he goes to Germany and steals some documents and shit. But throughout the movie, he is an entitled asshole, and we are supposed to be rooting for him for reasons that I cannot fathom, other than a lot of protagonists from the 80s are just assholes, and we're supposed to think that's cool. Yeah, that did you see have you seen john carpenter's prince of darkness recently not recently no they had it at the theater a few weeks ago and i went and i saw it and i was like oh this will be fun i haven't seen this since i was a kid it scared the pants off me back then i remember and there's a scene in which one of the protagonists like who turns out to be like the lead guy is hitting on a lady Uh uh-huh she's like oh you're being a creep or whatever that was sexist and he says confirm sexist and proud of it (laughs) ha 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 like he's making a joke but like the whole audience weird it was funny because yeah. It's just so not cool. <laughs> yeah. But in the 80s, like, that was supposed to be you would, cool. Yeah, and you would still hear people, like, recently I heard somebody say, like, well, I guess I'm pretty sexist. You know what? Pretend you're not. If you are acknowledging it in any way other than, and that's something I need to work on, then don't fu- It's like being like, yeah, I guess I'm pretty racist. Mm-hmm. Yeah, then fucking try, try to work on it. Yeah, you should acknowledge it, but not as, like, a... Sign like, the... male chauvinist pig and proud. I yeah. feel like there were t-shirts that said that shit in, like, 70s and 80s. Mm-hmm. I bet Kyle has that shirt. Yeah, it all comes back to Kyle. Yeah, he's really a piece <laughs> of shit. <laughs> he crashed David's dune buggy. That was such a cool dune buggy. And Steve told him, stop! He even, like, to the extent that, like, Steve Strange forgot that he knew magic and grabbed the wheel. He was so freaked <laughs> out. He was like, God damn it, Kyle! Well, he says... Kyle, slam on the brakes immediately. Immediately. And Kyle's response is, what? Slam on brakes? That's not the sort of thing I like to do. Why should I do that, Steve? And Steve tries to tell him again. He's like, Kyle, slam on the brakes right now. And then they blow up fucking David's dune buggy. And that was a nice dune buggy. Let's just look at some of his dialogue. Lest you, dear listener, if you don't have the comic (laughs) book in front of us, think that we are being too harsh on Kyle. So, Steve and Kyle get out of their hired limousine at the Cowpoke Commune. Steve says, we're both happy to make your acquaintance, Mr. Anthony. David says, just David, please. I don't think we've got a mister on this ranch. And listen, thanks both of you for jetting out here so quickly. I only wish I could be more optimistic about the prospects for finding... Kyle interrupts. And it's like, uh, enough, cowboy. How about we dispense with a chit-chat and you tell us everything you know about what happened to Trish Starr. And he's drawn with a big stupid scowl. He yeah. looks all mad. Blah. Interrupting jerk. Then later, he has been requested to tell them all that he knows about Trish Starr. 
He does, and then concludes by saying, And found Kyle's name circled in red in her address book. We took a chance and gave you a buzz. And Kyle interrupts him again and says, And now we're all here together. La-dee-da! Ugh. What the fuck, dude? It's even um, drawn with like little musical notes around Lottie Da because he's totally just sing-songing like a jackass. Yeah. Ugh. There's no call for this kind of animosity. He's just terrible. And then we all already talked about like as soon as Steve grabs Trish from where she's just floating in space and brings her back to Earth. Trish, it's me. It's me, the rich brat. Wake up. Say something. And then says, no, on second thought. Don't utter a peep. And then he kisses the unconscious lady. Gross. It's a weird panel where it looks like he's, like, using tongue, too. That's gross. It's really gross. And then he goes off and does that at the end right after a rescue, too, when Steve's like, We should probably sever her connection with Shah Nana. Um, (laughs) Because I don't want Bowser coming in here and strutting around. With his pompadour. (laughs) Some kind of greaser magician. (laughs) Doing PSAs with a strangely progressive equal rights approach. Mm. No, that... (laughs) Shazana. Shazana. Oh, there we go. There we are. Shazana. Yep. Yeah. Settled. We did point out that we're very tired and are drinking now, right? Yep. Okay, good. Just wanted to make sure. We talked a little bit earlier about how Jack is on the phone briefly. Yes. Do you take it at face value? So there are three potential explanations. We see that when the defenders are hanging out in Steve's sanctum sanctimonious, when Clea receives the psychic distress call from Steve via... Wait, Steve Vi called? <laughs> yes. <laughs> are you ready to rock? <laughs> Sorry. But yeah. Steve via Trish Star. <laughs> Via Shazana, made the psychic call to Clea. When Clea received that call, Jack is on the phone, Mm -hmm. and somebody asks who he's been on the phone with for an hour, and he says that it was a wrong number, and that it was a tourist who was lost, and he just felt bad for them and had to try to guide them out of the situation. I don't know what's going on there. there. The possible explanations as I see them are, one, it is planting a seed for a future storyline. Mm-hmm. B, that that's covering up a previously, like, that that's a hasty rewrite, that initially they were going to receive the phone call from something, and so it had been illustrated that I'm Jack psychically a... calling you on the telephone. <laughs> I'm wondering if that might be what it was, it's and then it's thing. like, well, now I got to explain why Jack is on the telephone in this panel, or that it's just a kind of fun non sequitur. Which of those do you think it is? I, I took it as uh, C, or three. Yeah. Just face value, like Jack Norris, you know? Uh, yeah. Kind of bumbling along and found himself given directions on how to get to I can see it being somewhere. any of those. I guess probably seeing as it's Gerber's last issue, the first is probably the most unlikely that it's planting the seed for a future storyline, unless I don't know to what extent he was in collaboration with Jerry Conway and was like, what do you want me to set up for the story arc you're about to do? Occam's Whetstone. Yes. Did you just make that up? I think so. I like it. Thank you. Yeah, so I, I don't know what's up with that phone call. Because being helpful in a way that doesn't vaingloriously serve his ego is not a particularly Jack Norris thing to do. Nope. Maybe he's trying to fucking cozy up to Val again. I bet the tourist was a lady. 
and he oh. thought she sounded sexy on the phone. Oh. And he was trying to wrap it up and get a number or a hotel or something. Yeah, or maybe he's trying to do some more secret spy shit. <laughs> I read through that last section of the yeah. annual. Jack Norris, secret agent. It's so good. <laughs> it really is fun. He's such a buffoon. He is. But see, that would be an example of like, we're supposed to see him as a buffoon in that, right? I hope so. So maybe we are also supposed to see Kyle as an asshole. I hope so. I hope so too. Because God, is that guy an asshole. Do you think when Steve heard that Trish is spending more time learning sorcery by navel gazing and like sitting locked in a room and like doing tarot readings and psychic mysticism by herself, he's like, I wonder if she knows about the tiny flame ghosts and what they're up to. I should probably give her a list of some mystic websites she might enjoy. You think he's he's skeezing on her? I think he thinks it's generally helpful. Oh. <laughs> this is what people do. This is how mysticism works. Not just like, here's some porn you might like. I think both. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It takes a certain type to be drawn to the sorceress arts. Mm -hmm. The other thing that Steve does that totally cracked me up in this issue that I thought was 100% in character is... When they first meet with David, David says something that I don't think Steve understood. And so his response was, I don't think Kyle understands, Dave. <laughs> Maybe you can explain it to him. Mm -hmm. David says, mm -hmm. it's just that, well, none of us even noticed the arm at first. One of the guys had to remind me of it when I gave her description to the police. And Steve, yeah, Steve says, uh, I don't think Kyle understands. Maybe you should tell him, Dave. Yep. Yeah, he, he didn't get it. Maybe that's just why he keeps Kyle around. Oh, yeah, the foil. For, it's like, uh, yes, now, I know what you're talking about, obviously, but maybe you could explain it slower and with smaller words for, for Kyle so that he gets it. Mm -hmm. I will admit to once or twice maybe using the Steve Strange tactic. Oh, yeah? Yeah, like on a call where something complicated happens. I'm like, maybe you could explain that to the rest of the people on the bridge so we're all on the same page. Blah, 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 people blah. on the bridge? Oh, that's what you call a conference call sometimes. Oh, I thought maybe we were on a starship. Not yet, my friend. When we finish those robots. So we're probably just supposed to assume that they fixed their brains, right? Um, After the headman messed yeah, with their brains? No, I forgot. Like, I forgot. Already, I think all about we were it. probably supposed to, but like we never saw that actually get resolved. So it's possible that the Hulk is just gonna keep smashing protesters, and Steve is just gonna keep running around pantsing people. I hope so. I kind of do too. And Valkyrie will still be minorly annoyed when people smash her windows with rocks. Yeah, yeah, they're fine. Okay, good. Yeah, yeah. No, just wore I, off. I wouldn't mind if Steve just kept going around pantsing people. Well, he does have a little bit of a flair for the for the absurd. He messed with the president. He turned the Secret Service guns into the little things that shoot flags that say bang. I feel like that was definitely before they fixed their brains. I felt like any brain fixing that would have happened would have, have to have been after that issue before this one, no? Post-terrarium. Post Post-terrarium, yeah. Okay. Maybe right? that so, was what fixed it. They got the put, terrarium? Yeah, it's a high pressure oh, environment. Oh, right, right. It's like a hyperbaric chamber. Yeah, for your brain. For your brain, mm. and then, gotcha. Science. And how. Speaking of Steve Strange and pantsing, 
There is a fun coloration miscue that happens in this. There are a couple, actually. One, we see that when Clea is in battle, her face and hands are bright purple. Which, maybe that's some kind of like weird battle armor that she wears or something. But it comes up a couple of times just on that one page. Really pissed off. Could be. Could be. She does not like these weird bird horses that those dudes are riding around on. Who would? Man, birds and horses together. Your two greatest (laughs) foes. Oh, no. I mean, if it was specifically geese and ponies that were the combination, then you'd be in real trouble there, buddy. I would be up a creek. Oh, some weird-looking things, too. Ugly. Yeah. I don't like them. That's fair. But we see a few pages later the other and better potentially coloration miscue, although there could be an in-story explanation for it, is that uh, Steve is not wearing pants. (laughs) Oh, his tights are gone. His tights are gone, so it just looks like he's wearing, like, a little mini-skirt. But we do see that it is him and Clea coming out to join the battle from behind a barn where they've been. (laughs) So it's possible they were just off fooling around and then he's like, oh, right, the battle, Uh, no time for pants. Oh, Oh. that would be a pretty great battle cry. No time for pants. No time for pants. If you are ever in a situation where you have to have a battle cry. And I don't have to have pants. Yeah, there you go. Is there anything else you want to talk about before we get into the minutiae? No, I think we covered everything that was in my notes. Okay. Well then, Rick, would you mind singing us into the minutiae? We got minutiae. It's not the biggest part, it's just minutiae. Like Cory eating farts, we got minutiae. Time to sweat the small stuff. Thanks, Rick. Cory, in this issue, as every issue of a Defenders comic, there is one character who has to act in a way that is contrary to his previously established character or motivation, in a way that furthers the plot. A character who just has to be, as the fat boy said in Crush Groove, a sucker. Mm Mm-hmm. Who just had to be a sucker. Well, I think I may need to retract it based on what we talked about earlier and replace it, but if we take at face value that Jack Norris was just trying to be a nice guy and Uh give somebody directions for Uh an hour... (laughs) Then it's Jack Norris, because that's not the kind of shit that he would do. I had the same one. Okay. It's I'm not saying he won't ever try to be helpful, but not if it's not in a way that is for personal glory or to try to make an appeal for Valkyrie's affection. Which maybe he was doing those things, but yeah, I had Jack Norris as mine. Because in general, I feel like everybody else acts very much in character in this issue. Uh, who, who did you have if it isn't Jack Norris, though? It sounds like you had a backup. Yeah, it was the, the self-effacing remark that, that Kyle made about right. him not like, oh, these guys must be bad at fighting because I'm doing well. Like, that seems pretty unusual for him to... To be, to be self-deprecating. Yeah. I feel like he's often pretty self-deprecating in a way that is trying to invite pity. Like, I feel like that came... Not when he's fighting, though, right? Maybe not specifically when he's fighting, but he does it, like, pretty much all the rest of the time. When he was going through his whole backstory when he was the brain in the bowl, there was a whole lot of, like, oh, feel sorry for me. Oh, why I do so many bad things? Like, like that time when I killed my girlfriend in a drunk driving accident? Leave it to me, you know? I feel like he does a lot of that self-effacing fishing I agree, but I don't think you know? I don't think it's it's the type of self-deprecation that's like I am bad at being a hero or bad at being specifically bad about at him being bad at combat. You're right. That this is maybe the first time he's mentioned that. Yeah. So I get a runner-up. Okay. For sucker, 
Especially in light of the fact that I now think that Jack Norris thought it was a sexy lady that okay. was lost in the big city. Oh, that he was maybe giving directions to Steve's house? Because I, I was just like, wait, he doesn't have a place. He's probably got places. He's I don't think he's got a place. I, I think his place is still in upstate oh. Vermont. I think he's just couch surfing. Uh, Crashing it. He's like, Steve's hey, place. head to Greenwich Village and come cozy up with me and we'll watch some weird flame porn oh he's gonna pretend it's his apartment mm -hmm. he's like i've got a really cool apartment with a lot of weird statues and shit in it you're gonna love it a lot of the stuff here is made out of i think dragons it's in the village super cool it's my <laughs> it's my sanctum uh he lost his vermont accent and became very california <laughs> <laughs> well it was when he was having his adventure as a secret agent Try to infiltrate uh, the global head oh, movement. right, yeah, he did a lot of accent work. Right, and yeah. he just ended up feeling like, you know what, dude? This California surfer thing's totally where I'm at. Pass the bongos. <laughs> well, he's no Matthew McConaughey slash Jericho. <laughs> Let's be fair. That's a high bar. Yeah. Well, you know what? We've danced around it a bit. Best defender, worst offender. Corey... In this issue, who was the worst offender? I don't like to be predictable, but fucking Kyle. Fucking Kyle. He crashes the dune buggy. Yes. He's a jerk. Yeah. He... He kisses an unconscious, traumatized ex-girlfriend. Yeah, okay, that's what I wrote down. Creepy Kyle kisses catatonic cohort. Ah. Gross. Yeah, he's a real piece of shit. Although, despite the fact, yes, it is definitely Kyle. It is 100% Kyle. It was a little bit closer than you might think, because it was almost Steve. How so? Because motherfucker doesn't learn. Because, oh, what could possibly go wrong if I see an unconscious blonde lady floating around in an alternate dimension, and I decide to rescue her without getting her consent? Because she's not going... She wasn't doing that before. Was she doing that before? I thought that... Came oh no, that came afterwards. After. Yeah. That came after. Like, fucking scope this situation out, talk to the girl before you snatch her out of the dimension, because it goes wrong in a very similar way to Barbara Norris, who he psychically severed from her bond with three-headed Glenn. Mm -hmm. I was really, really frustrated with Steve at that move when he just shoves her in there, and it ends up threatening our entire dimension. She had put herself, she had locked herself in that other dimension for a very good reason, and while maybe she wasn't happy there, and maybe she did need rescue, poke around a little bit, do a little bit of investigation before you just fucking decide to snatch unconscious blonde girls from where they put themselves in a weird dimension. That is an excellent point. Despite that... Oh, Kyle's an asshole, and it's definitely Kyle. And despite that, I had Steve as the best because he yells what? at Kyle. <laughs> okay, he does yell at Kyle, but he yells at Kyle a couple of times. And he made Kyle apologize to David. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's a pretty weak reason, but that's what I got. Who did you have? I had a tough time with the best because I, I was pretty pissed at Steve. So I, I had to roll out Steve as mine mm -hmm. because uh, fucking learn. Learn and pay attention and fucking consent, dude. Uh, um, think about who we're talking about. Yeah, it's, I know. It's not his thing. Yeah. He's no sucker. Learning and getting consent are not his thing. Nope. Doesn't make him a better person. That's not an excuse. I'm not saying it does. I'm just You're saying, saying that's that that's not character. why I should rule him out as being the worst? 
No, no, no. I'm just saying that your expectation that he learns is right. Gonna no, set you up. No, for a but it does disqualify him from being the best defender, especially when you have the Hulk, who grabs an axe out of a dude's hand, calls both it and the man's grasp puny, and then crushes it, and then also displays a perhaps slightly uncharacteristic world weariness about the ultimate futility of combat. So the Hulk, I think, is my choice, although also Clea did a very good job in this issue. It was nice to see her join in some actual mystical combat Mm -hmm. and bring the entire team to the rescue and put on her purple combat face Mm -hmm. and then go fool around with Steve behind the barn during the middle of the combat, which is maybe why she doesn't get the total vote for best defender. A little bit. But pretty fun. Um, Also in the running was Trish. But... Yeah, I know. She's not really a defender. But it is a non-team, and she does show that she has potentially at least superpowers. But I feel like that's a little bit too close to me playing Macaroni Iwin with the who's a defender rules. Yeah, yeah, maybe. Uh, Macaroni Iwin was a game that my sister Meg invented that I kept trying to learn the rules of when I was growing up. She's three years older than me. But... She invented this game called Macaroni Iwin, in which each player gets a certain amount of playing cards, and you put cards down, alternate each other like you would when playing war, and at a certain junction, she would cry out, Macaroni Iwin, and that would be the end of the game. And I tried to learn the rules, and I tried to figure it out, and I I would occasionally say, Macaroni Iwin? She's like, no, no, no. The only rule it turned out was that only she could win. And that was the whole point of Macaroni I win. So I'm trying not to do that with the who gets to be a defender's rules, because I know I've been strict with you in the past on certain points. Thank you. So I, I don't think Trish qualifies, despite the fact that she came up with some great commune plans for the commune dude ranch and did a good job staving off a interdimensional invasion by herself for a long time, sealing her off in the other dimension so would, that would really Shazanana could come and... Also, also, what's particularly, to me, impressive about that... No is... training. No formal training. Yeah. Just yeah. some tarot cards. Yeah, she didn't have an ancient one helping her around. Zipped off Showing to... her where the uh, the flame ghosts like to fuck. Yep. Just zipped off to Spaceville and it was like, imprisoned I... herself yeah. there. Yeah, so... Tempted to give it to her, but I think... I think to to avoid playing macaroni, I win. I'm, I'm giving this to the Hulk. Meg would be proud. No, she wouldn't. She would claim victory. <laughs> she won. Yeah, she won. I also loved that Hulk's reaction to Steve Strange giving him a psychic call is to whack the side of his head like when you're trying to get water out of your ear from the swimming. Well, that actually plays into what was your favorite panel? Because that one was up there for me. Oh, geez. There were some good panels here to choose from. On page 11, we have Strange in Space, which, as usual, is just awesomely illustrated very psychedelic space scene his astral form is flying around his hands are doing that weird strangey thing that they uh-huh. it's really nicely rendered also he may not be wearing pants <laughs> he may or tell. may not be wearing pants well that that one isn't colored in so it's tough to tell yeah but yeah it's a i bet when he's in other dimensions he is not wearing pants that's when he takes it easy a certain sense of freedom yes yes it's important that is a really nice panel i like that one a lot I did have as one of mine the aforementioned shut up, stupid magician, get out of my ear, Hulk (laughs) moment. Because, yeah, the look on his face is just, it's so good. And it's extra good because 
it is a very Hulk expression and a very Sal Buscema Hulk expression, and I'm really, really going to miss the way Sal Buscema draws the Hulk. Like, he is in many ways my definitive The Hulk artist. Mm -hmm. And it's real good. One of the other possibilities that I had was a panel I call I See the Structure, which is, it's from David's description of what happened to Trish when she first, I believe, made contact with Shazanana. Mm -hmm. And she's just, like, coming out of a giant atom symbol and... It's really, really nicely drawn, and it's really cool looking. Psychedelic freakout. Yeah. And everybody else saw it, too, which is yeah. which is nice. Yeah. Otherwise, you'd feel pretty bad for her. And she just goes and passes out in a chair. But yeah, that was a really, really nice panel. I think it comes down to those two for me. I had on the, the page, page seven, the page following that, the zoom in on Doctor Strange's face when he's trying to tell Kyle to hit the brakes <laughs> on that doom buggy before they crash. Jesus fucking Christ, Kyle! <laughs> he's like, Kyle, stop! <laughs> and he looks freaked the fuck out. It's hilarious. He looks super freaked out. It's so good. <laughs> Kyle, stop! Slam on the brake immediately! Do you hear? Huh? But why? There's no sign of Trish. All I see is the sand and cactus and... Kyle, in Ostro's name, stop! My psychic scan of the area has revealed... Too many words. <laughs> and then, bang. Too many words, but he did say the important part, which is the Kyle stop immediately, twice. And Kyle's like, huh? What? I think stop this car? I think... That I'm driving? He should just magically take over Kyle and make him do what he wants. He's always mind-wiping people, and I'm not really cool with that. But, this is Kyle we're talking about. She's <laughs> like, take him over, make him stop doing stupid shit. Yeah, or, I mean, like, I mean, he could have at least taken the car over if not taken Kyle over. He could have done a million things. He's almost, like, omnipotent sometimes, yeah, so. he's nigh-omnipotent. Corey. Let's talk about clothes. Okay. Sartorially speaking, what elements of fashion in this issue did you feel were worthy of note? I was amused by the getup of... I forgot how we say it. Shazanana? Shazanana. Yeah. Yeah, it's a pretty good outfit. I definitely wanted to talk about her as well. I liked David's clothes, too. Those were the two that I had. Those were the two that I had, too. So let's start with David. All right. Got a nice yellow western shirt. That's tucked into his jeans. Very blousey. Yeah. For a Western. Maybe in the 70s, Western shirts were blousey. Maybe a little bit. Billowy. Maybe specifically if you're on a commune. Oh, yeah, um, man. But he's also got a uh, nice, like, orange kerchief tied around his neck. Mm -hmm. And he tucks his jeans into his boots and his Western shirt into his jeans. White jeans? Occasionally white jeans. They go back and forth. They start off as blue jeans and then I think maybe something scared them, and they went ghost white. Man, that's a tough look for a <laughs> hard-working uh, dude ranch comic yeah, guy. Yeah, he pulls it off, I think. Um, I'm just saying, it's a lot of laundry. Oh, you mean having white pants? Yeah. I'm wondering if it maybe is just that he got scared real bad, and that that's how maybe acid wash started. Like, you know how, like, when somebody has, like, the shock of white in their hair, it's mm -hmm. because they saw a ghost and it scared them real bad? Mm -hmm. I wonder if the early acid washes, somebody saw a ghost and it scared their pants so bad that it just got a white streak down the middle. Did you own any of those? I tried to make some, and I did a bad job. Oh, yeah. I ended up with just big white bleach stains mm -hmm, on mm -hmm, them, mm -hmm. which I thought were okay. They, in retrospect, they were not. 
I drew things on those sometimes, like band logos and stuff. I can drop anarchy symbols, dead Kennedy symbol, or you know, <laughs> yeah, cool stuff like that. Yeah, yeah, pretty cool. Peace sign, anarchy symbol. Yeah, you know, DK logo. The years. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I guess what I'm saying is I was pretty cool. New Hampshire punk rock, man. It's just like <laughs> right there with you. Yeah, anarchy yeah. in Boston. <laughs> but let's talk about Shazan Anaz get up. All the greens. All the greens, and uh, you can tell she's evil because her hair makes little horns that go on the side of her head. Mm-hmm. Now, I know what you're thinking. A lot of characters in the Marvel Universe have little horns that are made out of hair on their head. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But those are horns that go in the front that are made out of their bangs. There's a mnemonic device that you can use that'll help you remember this. It's uh, horns on the side, evil abides. Horns for your bangs. You got yourself a conflicted character who's trying to overcome their inner struggles. Mang. Uh, pretty good. It's a good rhyme. And a good mnemonic device helps you remember which characters are evil and which are more like a, uh, you know, conflicted hero. Or a conflicted villain. Like a Magneto, perhaps, because he's got that going on. But uh, Quicksilver's got that, Clea's got that, Son of Satan's got that. You know, Star Fox, who's a fucking creepo. But, uh... Red and white, up all night, blue and yellow, kill a feller. <laughs> oh, good to remember. What's that from? That is from the Fabulous Furry Freak Brothers comic. Oh, fantastic. Gilbert Sheldon. Is there anything he can't teach us? So much. So much. <laughs> hey, thing or two. A uh, proper cat feeding procedure <laughs> that could be one yeah mm. that fat freddy's cat that poor cat that poor cat um, <laughs> did you have any other sartorial speaking you wanted to do no i'm good okay cool sound effects what was your favorite sound effect Corey? oh i like the sound that the red guardian makes when she split kicks two helmeted dudes in the head oh do you mean yeah. twap twap yeah <laughs> that was so good I really like the twap twap. I hear you really like the twap twap. Do you really? Um, I also really liked room, which yeah. is the noise it makes when you are an asshole and don't listen to Steve Strange, and then you wreck your new friend who you're being a dicks to, Dune Buggy. <laughs> you said being a dicks to? Yep. He's being that big of a dick. He's being two dicks. Two, two dicks. It's a well, it's at night. So he's two dicks. <laughs> <laughs> it's the lamest power I know <laughs> Any other sound effects? Oh yeah Page 23 when Shazan Anna Gets magic troubles And she says Aah! Oh yeah the Is that a sound effect or just an utterance? It's hard I to tell. think it's something that she's saying But it is in the sound effect like Font It's a Yeah it's a borderline one Yeah <laughs> Or I'm I'm sorry, it's probably because <laughs> she's in Shanana. <laughs> yep. If a girl can do it, a guy can too. You can do anything you want to do. That's from the PSA where Bowser tried to tell people it was okay if guys wanted to get into sewing. I know. Yeah. Okay. Sorry. <laughs> okay. They don't know. Probably. Right. Uh, that was for Kyle that I was explaining that oh, he yeah. doesn't understand. He's a real dummy. He's a real piece of shit. Yes. What was your 
pie not made out of steel for this issue. What was your favorite metaphor? You know, despite Kyle's disappointment at David's verbose nature, Mm -hmm. I quite liked at the beginning his explanation of where he was talking about that they didn't even notice that Tristar had only one arm because of her just awesomeness. Uh Uh-huh. And so I'll just read that a little bit. Okay. It's on page two, and uh, this is right after Strange says, like, oh, Kyle doesn't understand (laughs) what you meant. Maybe you could explain it to him. Yep. And so Dave says, she was true to her surname in every way, man. From the minute she arrived, she shone. We were too mesmerized by those eyes to fixate on a pinned-up sleeve. That was really nice. That's what what I love about David. Mm -hmm. Good guy. Yeah, and good metaphor, too. So I had that down as one potential. Another potential metaphor that I had was the Hulk, who was simple and to the point in his. It is when he snatches the giant two-handed axe out of the executioner's hand. So the hat, the the executioner guy says, Oh, my grip! You tore it loose! And Hulk says, Hatchet man's grasp is puny, like hatchet! Hulk is stronger than both! Strong as whole army! Ah. I thought that was nice. It was direct and to the point. But I decided to go with a larger metaphor that is within the comic. That is not made with words, but that is made as an allusion, I believe. And that is the cube that Kyle and Trish Starr are trapped inside of. Because it's, it's this cube that traps them inside. But it's made out of their own... Like bioenergy. Bioenergy, exactly. Um, and so that if the cube is broken, then they will die inside of it. And I thought that, man, that cube, that's like our heads, man. Like it's trapping us inside. And it's trapping us inside of our own concept of what our ego is. And if you break it, then you lose yourself and you die, right? If you break your head, yeah. If you break your head, or you're, or if you, if you, uh, if you have like total ego loss all of a sudden too. But the way they get out of the cube is they expand their mind and they let Clea inside, and she communicates with them telepathically so that they grow and become one. And then the cube tries to expand, but it can't, and it dissipates. And then they're truly free, man. So that by trying to expand your mind, mm-hmm. that's the only way you can really be free. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> that's yeah. my pie not made out of steel. <laughs> yeah, far out. So go read some more Gilbert Shelton. <laughs> Yes. We all know that the Hulk rules. Mm -hmm. But in this issue, what were the Hulk's rules? You know, he, despite the former difficulties he had due to the brain meddling where wanting to smash protests and everything, is a champion of social justice. Yes. And um, that's illustrated by the statement that he makes on page 26. And, you know, said that it needed to be said, but... Girl's head belongs to girl. Head is not hatchet man's to take. (laughs) It is not. It is not, no. And I had the same one. It's women's bodies are their own. Mm -hmm. And it is a lesson that Kyle could stand to learn. And Hulk definitely displayed his knowledge of it by keeping hatchet man from cutting off Trish Star's head. Yep. But also, I think Kyle could have stood to learn that when he decided to grab an unconscious lady and smooch her. 
And Steve stood to learn from that when he decided to grab Trish out of the dimension without consulting her about whether she wanted to be first. So yeah, I had the same one. Good call. Good call. And good on the Hulk, man. Mm-hmm. Girl's head belongs to girl. Mm-hmm. Not Hatchet Man's to take. It is not. It is not. Isn't Hatchet Man like the Juggalos mascot? Oh, I don't know. It's They do have that little like profile of a guy with the hatchet. I thought he had a cleaver. Oh, is it a cleaver? I think he's got a oh, cleaver, it, but his name Hatchet Man. Oh, really? He's got a name? <laughs> I think so. There's a lot. I... There's, There's so a lot about Juggalo know. culture I don't understand. Hmm. I hear it's like a family. Yeah, I hear woot woot. Mm-hmm. And that's the Hulk's rules. <laughs> Corey. <laughs> yeah. Let's talk about some Wong doings. Wong doings? Yes. In November of 1976, a month we have covered extensively very recently, what was Wong doing in his Wong doings? I'm glad you asked. Because it gives me an opportunity to explain not only why I was playing Bob Marley's Could This Be Love, but also Damien Jr. Gong Marley's Welcome to Jamrock. I had just assumed it was because we were apparently both freshmen in college. No? Ouch. Harsh. <laughs> Not inaccurate. <laughs> but I, I still I do love all that music, as okay. you know. However, weird thing to note is that uh, in November of 1976, Wong, yeah, you know, spiraled into a little bit of a depression about the Yankees signing Reggie Jackson because he really wasn't a big fan of them and didn't yeah. want to, to do very well. So. No, no. And once they got the straw, mm-hmm. best nickname ever, the straw that stirs the drink. Yeah. That is so fucking tight. It is. It is the tightest. So he reached out to his old friend, Bob Marley. Mm. As we know, um, Wong has deep connections throughout many parts of the musical universe. Yes. Bob was in town on tour. Oh, that's not historically accurate, but, it, but I need to do it for he, the story. He might have been. He, he, yeah, it's possible. This is the 70s. Yeah. You know, but he was off that night, and he was like, oh, we'll go to this little jazz club. There's this Canadian jazz singer playing there who, you're not going to believe this, Bob, Miss World. Hmm? Yeah. She was 1976 Miss World. And she um, was also a jazz singer? She was a jazz singer, and this is this is uh, Miss uh, Cindy Breakspear, um, whose folks were from Jamaica. Oh. Turned out... They hit it off. Bob was married to Rita Marley at the time, mm. but it's purported that the song Is This Love was him writing about Cindy, oh. Miss World, and together they had a child, and that's Damian Marley, oh. who sang the Welcome to Jamrock, among many <laughs> other hits. So thank you, Wong, for bringing these musical delights into our lives. Very good. That was very well researched, Corey. Well thank done. You. Thank you. That is one of Wong's Wong doings. From November 1976. That's, that's... Among many that we have discussed, I believe last time we saw Wong in November of 1976, he was pretty fed up with Steve about Steve's love of Kathy comic strips. <laughs> or And so conversely. they had been feuding about that <laughs> off and on. So many versions of history. Yeah. So they decided to try to make amends. They went to a movie together. They went and saw Network together. Uh, they both really liked the movie. They, they were impressed by it. They thought it had some trenchant points that it raised about the uh, nature of modern media at the time. 
So they're like, okay, yeah, we need to do more things together. So a few nights later on the 16th, they went and saw the Golden State Warriors play. And Rick Barry at the time had a 60 free throw in a row streak going for himself. He shot the free throws underhand style. Interesting player. And so Wong's intently watching the game and Steve has brought a newspaper with him. And he is once again reading Kathy comic strips aloud to Wong and saying, Oh, that Irv will never commit to a relationship, will he, Wong? Look at this. Ack! Chocolate! Ha! <laughs> that Kathy! And Wong has had enough. And so he just stands up and yells, as inspired by the film network, I'm as mad as hell and I'm not gonna take this anymore! <laughs> and it distracts Rick Barry, who misses his free throw. The first time he has missed a free throw in 60 in a row. A streak that stands to this day. Damn. All because Steve Strange would not shut up about Kathy. And that was wow. the Wong doings. Of November 1976. I'll say. Yet again. <laughs> I'll say. Wow. Nice work, sir. Thank you, likewise. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us, dear listeners, on this perhaps incoherent episode that we made purposefully difficult to understand as a tribute to Steve Gerber. We'll miss you, Steve. We will. And you, so. Corey, what happened? What happened? Yeah, and I am super going to miss Sal Buscema. It's been, I think, about 20 issues, maybe 21 of Steve Gerber. But it's been 41 issues of Sal Buscema. It's going to be weird to see the Defenders not be drawn by him. Indeed. But I'm curious as to what. I, I really like both Jerry Conway and Keith Giffen. And I'm looking forward to seeing what they bring to the table. Don't look a gift horse in the mouth. Because Giffen sounds like gif? Edit that out. No. <laughs> macaroni i win oh jesus <laughs> if you'd like to get into touch with us you can do so at ttwasteland at gmail.com you can leave us a review on itunes or stitcher or i think spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts and that would help people find us and we would like them to do that if you would like to contribute monetarily i, I know i could use it uh, <laughs> it's uh patreon.com slash ttwasteland if the show is something that you feel you get a lot of enjoyment out of. If it, if it's something that you enjoy, that you feel that you benefit from, um, I put a lot of work into it, and I would really appreciate it if you donate it. If you do, you get access to exclusive content that is only for our donors. Me and Corey have recorded a few episodes that are like that, and Lisa and I have an ongoing monthly series called What the Duck, a Podcast Most Foul, but with a W because he's a duck. That's the full name of the show a uh, podcast whose name has diminishing returns that we do about Howard the Duck. It's really fun, and I think you would enjoy that. If not, that's cool too, and we'll see you back here next week with a Teen Titans issue, which I believe we'll see the return of Aqualad, which I'm looking forward to. Wet and wild. Finally. Uh, you can follow us on Facebook and on Twitter. I, I say things on Twitter sometimes, so there's that. I believe I recently made reference to the fact that Ranger Rick's cover story this week had some walruses on it, and the headline was Husky Tuskies. <laughs> so I you meant cover story. Like, like it was their cover story. It was an like, in-depth oh, ex expose. I totally wasn't doing that thing. Oh, oh. That was not me. That was some Husky Tuskies. <laughs>
had nothing to do with that. I don't even hang out with those guys. But, uh, yeah, thank you so much for joining us, and we'll see you soon. Husky Tuskies. I don't hang out with those guys. No need for pals! And they knew it. Rick Barry at the time. Sorry, Finley hates Rick Barry. Rick Barry. See? Every time I say it, I, I train him too well. Rick Barry. Rick Barry. Wait, <laughs> he really hates him. Yeah. Charles Barkley. There we go. See? He knows, he knows who beat Godzilla. Um, <laughs> Rick Barry at the time. Oh. Finley. Elijah Wan. There we go. Rick Barry. <laughs> it turns out Finley is a Houston Rockets fan. That's the weirdest thing. Yeah. Rick Barry. <laughs> John Barry? <laughs> He's not crazy about his kids either. Um...